1: Hi, and welcome to the Josh Marshall podcast. This is David Tainter. Josh Marshall is out today, so uh, we are filling in. I've got Kate Riga here, as always. Hey, Kate. Hey, David. And joining us is investigative reporter Josh Kavinsky. Josh, thank you for being our token Josh today on the <laughs> podcast. It's, it's it's good to be a Josh, if not be Josh, so thank
0: you.
1: Absolutely. All right, well, we have a lot of news to get to today. Obviously, a lot of us have been up late covering the GOP convention this week after last week's DNC, so lots of late nights in the TPM virtual newsroom. But a bunch of other news has broken over the last week since we had our, our weekly episode. And I guess the biggest story in the TPM world right now is the downfall of Jerry Falwell Jr., the now former president of Liberty University, one of the top evangelical leaders in the country, basically a really influential person who has um, been at the helm of the university for a number of years. Kate or Josh, do you know how, how long has he has his tenure been there?
2: That's a great question. I want to say since it's the, uh, since the 2000s, I mean, he, the, the interesting thing with Falwell is that you know, his dad founded Liberty University. It, the university was in arrears when Jerry Falwell Jr. took over. But as far as I know, he didn't immediately take over. I mean, he became president in 2007. In 2007 hmm. um, gotcha. Right after his dad died, yeah. Right. So gotcha. his dad was like basically president from his founding until his death. And then Jerry Falwell Jr. took over in 2007 upon his father's death.
1: Right, right. Yeah, so we'll, we'll be getting into all of that. We also, last week, uh, saw federal charges filed against Steve Bannon, Trump's former campaign manager. And then finally, we'll dig into the Republican convention a little bit. Um, if you haven't been following our convention recap podcast, you can find that in the same feed and catch up on what you may have missed. But before all that... Let's hear a word from our sponsor. Do you love to save a buck by skipping the coffee shop? Are you a do-it-yourselfer or even a brew-it-yourselfer? Well, so is Grady's Cold Brew. You asked and they delivered. A brew-it-yourself with Grady's New Orleans-style coarse-ground coffee blend. It's designed to work in any hot or or cold coffee maker. And one bag makes 24 servings of Grady's Cold Brew exactly the way you want it. I'm literally drinking some right now. I think Josh might be as well. I am, Yeah. Order online and receive 16 ounces of their famous 100% Arabica beans and French chicory in a resealable pouch for long lasting freshness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdbrew.com with the promo code TPM. Or you can order Grady's on Amazon or pick it up uh, at your local grocer or wherever you uh, get your delicious caffeine products. All right, so. Josh, you've been covering the Falwell story a lot for us this week. And Kate, you've, you've written a fair amount about Falwell and Liberty University in the past too. Um, there's so many threads to the story to unspool for listeners. So I, I just wondered, Josh, maybe you can start by kind of giving us the 30,000 foot view of the story as it's unfolded over the last week or so. What, what are the kind of big, big points listeners need to know about it?
2: So I think the big thing is that this is all happening after literally years of mystery. Um, around Falwell, his wife, and this pool boy from Miami, uh, Giancarlo Granda. Um, and so for years, there have been questions about why the three of them were kind of involved. Uh, there was a real estate deal uh, involving a Miami hostel that they all owned. That real estate deal went bad and it was in a lawsuit, but the lawsuit revealed that there, was, that there were ties between the three of them. Um, and so there's been reporting over the past couple years uh kind of hinting that there had been some kind of relationship but it wasn't clear what that relationship really was until monday or rather sunday night so sunday night Falwell issues this statement saying his wife becky had an affair with the pool boy um and then monday reuters reports that um it wasn't just an affair but that jerry was watching in the corner as his wife the pool boy slept together with each other i think like it's it's obviously like funny and like uh prurient because Falwell has made a career out of like wagging his finger and telling other people what to do with their private lives, so and also Liberty University, the university he runs, has this like incredibly draconian uh, code of like moral conduct, which involves like no private or conduct, no no private contact between members of the opposite sex. So there's that kind of funny hypocritical element to it. But what I think makes it more interesting is that there's also this these suggestions of blackmail. Uh, having to do with the 2016 Republican primary. Um, again, the 30,000 foot view there is there's a big question over why Jerry Falwell, this big influential evangelical leader, uh, supported Donald Trump, um, thereby you know, taking evangelical support away from Ted Cruz and giving it to Trump, who was then a candidate in the primary. And there have been these kind of rumors, these suggestions, that that might have had something to do with an effort on, behalf, on the part of the Trump campaign to help Falwell Conceal uh, this affair with the pool boy. But again, the details of like how that might happen didn't really come out until this week.
1: Right. Kate, anything you would add uh, just sort of out to our understanding of the scandal as it's been unfolding?
0: I mean, I think it just, it has everything. Like it's gross, it's hypocritical. I mean, you had, and like each kind of div- unspooling of the story had its own little like microcosm of scandal like you had Falwell kind of trying to get ahead of the um, interview that uh, Grande gave to Reuters and in it you know he was completely shoved all the onus onto his wife you know like she was the one having an affair blah 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 which makes this like his penchant for watching them not just kind of like I don't know makes your skin crawl but also you know I think people are kind of reveling in the fact that He's going down as well when he clearly tried to throw her under the bus. Um, I mean, not to mention was, Falwell. Oh, god.
2: No, I'm just saying. Yeah, it was. It was so weird that statement. Mm-hmm. The way he, the way he worded it, like I'm confessing yeah. on behalf of my wife for her right. own discretion. Like it was like. Yeah. I mean, there was actually it was like really misogynistic, but it, it was also just like very kind of like strange. I don't know.
0: Yeah, like heavy use of the passive voice. I don't know. It's yeah. just the whole, you know. And then it's Falwell had already. You know, it's not like he is not a person who makes enemies to begin with, you know, the bulk of the reporting that I did on him was his vehemence about reopening Liberty, um, in person, having all the kids come back after spring break, you know, while all the rest of the colleges basically shuttered and sent kids home. And, um, you know, there were little mini scandals within that of faculty members, you know, protesting, saying that he's putting them at risk. And, you know, then he, took it, He like obtained warrants for the arrest of some reporters who were on campus to report the story, and that became. That's right. A I forgot thing. about that whole yeah. wrinkle. Yeah, right.
1: yeah. And there's been, I mean, there's been a number of other, I guess, headaches for Well, for lack of a better word, over the past few months. Right? There was that apology in June after he tweeted a photo of someone in a KKK hood next to someone in blackface. Right? Am I getting yeah. those details yeah, right, a, Josh? A,
0: it was a mask with that emblazoned on it. Right.
1: Gotcha, right, right, and um, and also there was this kind of weird uh photo that he tweeted on a yacht with his wife's personal assistant who was pregnant, right, and yeah. they both had their pants unzipped, and he had a glass of a dark with a dark beverage in it that he said was what water with food coloring instead of red no, wine. No, he did which not. It kind of did he say that? to be. Yeah, he said it was. He like joked, "Oh, it's like a dark <laughs> beverage." Yeah. What. And so, Josh, there's been, I mean, there's been a number of, I don't know, not indiscretions exactly, but just, I don't know, these issues that keep coming up in his yeah. in his history, and, and yet it hadn't led to his downfall until, I guess, most recently. But where the, the yacht incident, I guess, led to his sort of suspension initially from his position as president. Is that right?
2: Yeah, his indefinite suspension. What's really wild about all that is, like, how out in the open it was and just has been. So even the, like photo of him on the yacht, like, if you go to his Instagram page, you can still see the rest of the photo album, which has, like, I mean, th- none of the photos are, like, that lascivious or, like, as bad as that one, but, like, it- it's still him hanging out with the same people, just having this, like, kind of, like, debauched vacation on a yacht in the Caribbean. Like, it's, like, it- it's not, like, I mean, it- there- it's-, it's not explicitly breaking the rules, I suppose, but it doesn't, like, look like something that... uh a monk, like, a, 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 <laughs> a, like a, a monk would do, right? Um, but uh, in terms of like, yeah, I mean, if you look back at this at the history of this, like I, I think it does raise this question of like, why now? because all like the vast majority of these allegations have kind of been out there. Um, you know, Politico has a guy, Brandon Ambrosino, who, I think went to liberty and he did a really good report last year. Uh, which kind of exposed a lot of this, um, which, you know, Falwell would, like, basically, like, tell other... I at one point, he, like, accidentally emailed, like, make a picture of his wife to, like, uh, the Board of Liberty. He would, like, talk to them about, like, their sex life. Like, all of these things, like, were kind of going on. So you have to kind of guess that, at least within Liberty University, this probably isn't exactly a shock. It's just the problem is that it's out of the open in a way that it
1: wasn't before. Right. And even as far back as 2014, there were photos of Falwell and his son, maybe at a nightclub in Miami. Is that right? So, I mean, all of these kinds of little incidents have been popping up over the years. And um, so I guess Jerry Falwell now stands to make up to, I guess, like 10 million dollars. Uh, as part of his exit package, right? Is there any, I guess part of the reason maybe he had survived for so long in that position is that he really was able to bring in money to the university, right? Is that your sense of why he kind of hung on for so long despite these, I don't know, kind of embarrassing little episodes for the university?
2: He was, but it's really interesting because, so that is like his and his defenders kind of standard line that, yeah, look, you know, when Jerry Fallow Jr. Took, took over this college in 2007, it was in arrears. You know, Jerry Fallow Sr. was a great preacher blah, 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 blah. But he wasn't like a financial, I suppose, like mastermind. He wasn't able to really keep this going. There was a question in 2007 of whether or not Liberty University would be a going concern. And Jerry Falwell Jr. managed to resolve that. But even that has raised, has come under kind of question in recent years. Um, There have been reports suggesting there's been financial mismanagement. A lot of it has had to do with, I think, similar behavior that we saw at at the NRA, where it's like, Vendors or contractors of liberty are given these huge projects like multi-million dollar projects uh, And they go on for a long time, they aren't necessarily useful And they also happen to be people who are connected to Jerry Falwell Jr. in some way Um, You know, there's a separate scandal kind of which is still very unclear Involving an associate of Jerry Falwell's who was hired by the Trump campaign To do like media work for them and that also is like, you know, it's not really clear why that happened because the person didn't really have that much experience in politics before that. Um, you know, I, I think financially, yeah, he, he got them out of trouble, but there have been questions in recent years over whether or not that's like still the case, whether the university has survived some of the allegations of mismanagement. Um, but I think what's interesting there is, again, like the ties to Trump world. Um, one of the reports we saw yesterday was Giancarlo Granda, the pool boy, saying that in May 2015, before uh, you know anybody knew that Trump was going to run for president, Fala went to, went to this pool boy and was like, look, we need to dissolve our financial relationship, um, and by the way, uh, my friend Donald Trump is considering a run for president. Um, And so the question there is is like, you know, was Falwell trying to sort of cover his ass before like any of this took place? Did he recognize that he couldn't really have this relationship be documented as he before he entered the national political scene? Um, And if so, what steps did he take to conceal that? And then if he didn't successfully conceal it, what steps do other people take to try and exploit that as a vulnerability?
1: Right, right. Kate, I wondered if you could maybe touch on, I don't know, one kind of related point in all of this, which is that Trump enjoys such overwhelming support from the evangelical community. And I guess Falwell's endorsement of him back in the 2016 primaries was a big, a big boost to his campaign. Why do you think that is still, I mean, you know, we have Trump's own documented history of infidelity and kind of, I don't know, playboy behavior, for lack of a better word, too. And and yet he still enjoys such strong support from that group of voters. What do you make of that, I don't know, enduring support?
0: Yeah, I don't, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I have to believe it's just the abortion thing that these people are acting as single issue voters. Um, Yeah, because you're right. I mean, Trump has been married, what, three times? It's just, you know, but if if your vote boils down to simply who's gonna be pro-choice and pro-life, though, of course, Trump has not been pro-life his entire political career, but, you know, he is at the moment then I guess that is why you support him. But, I mean, even that is not really a satisfactory enough answer for me because you would think that if that was the case, you would kind of have begrudging support or the kind of thing like, yeah, we don't like X, Y, and Z about him, but no choice, hold your nose kind of thing. But, you know, that's not what we see. We've seen, like, pretty enthusiastic support for Trump from the evangelical corner. So, I don't know. I guess at this point it's just maybe tied so deeply into party identity that the things go hand in hand
2: yeah yeah I wonder sense. do you think Kate like sometimes you hear from the evangelical side and I think the Falwells have said this like in recent days that like I mean the line that Becky Fallwell Falwell used yesterday was I wish Christians and people would be as forgiving as Christ was um, but there's this kind of idea sometimes that like you know, we're all sinners and we need to be forgiven for our for our, our, our sins in, in, in life. And as long as people kind of state these good intentions, they're allowed to get away with it. I mean, does that like strike either of you as part of what's going on here? Or is that maybe like kind of naive way of thinking about it?
0: I mean, maybe. You would think yeah. that people would have a vested interest in seeing so you actually, actually try to avoid sin to merit that forgiveness, which Trump doesn't really do. But I think there's also a dynamic happening, which is, Trump's kind of attitude of grievance of the, I'm always under attack. I'm trying to do the best I can. I'm being thwarted by X, Y, Z can kind of be shoe, um, kind of like shoehorned into this, um, evangelical thing where you believe that, you know, you're supposed to suffer as Trump or as a Jesus suffered. And like, it's the path of the righteous is one that attracts condemnation and attacks and you need to hold the way and, you know, you're going to be persecuted for that, but that is, um, you know, that that's holy, that's following in Jesus' footsteps. So there is some amount of, I think, if you kind of take that suffering piece from evangelicalism that fits into Trump's grievance thing, um, you know, which then kind of leads you into a whole bunch of other schisms on the right, but the idea of, you know, I support Trump because, I don't know, you've convinced yourself that he stands up for... I guess maybe just the lives of the unborn and then you say and you know what, he's actually doing his best but he's being thwarted by all these other forces which if you already identify with the right wing of the party are already kind of postured as your enemies now, um, then maybe you can like cover that in the, the you know patina of Christian suffering.
1: Right.
2: It does make me think about like, so for example like Kayleigh McEnany, the like, current press secretary, it, it, she has a really interesting public image where if you look at how I think maybe people in the media perceive her or people who generally kind of, I don't know, basically people who aren't like explicitly only consuming right wing like news. Uh, I mean, she's this kind of like farce, right? Like she's going up there and like telling these for ridiculous lies. But if you look at how she's pers- how she's kind of like pitched and how she's positioned on the right, it's very much like she is this like good christian girl she's this sort of like emissary to like the evangelical community she's always wearing a big cross around her neck she's always giving these interviews about her faith um and it's i don't know i i, I don't know what to make of it beyond that other than that there is this like real concerted effort to constantly emphasize that like there is like a hardcore religious element in the, in, in this like administration even though to us looking at it from the outside it just seems like ridiculous
1: on its face right i mean look at trump's uh photo op at the St. John's Church outside the White House. Is that the name of, am I getting the name of the church mm-hmm. right? I believe so. I'm, you know, tear gassing a crowd of protesters so he can walk across the park to uh, kind of awkwardly wave a Bible around. <laughs> so, uh, all right, well, let's move on to the other big story of the last week, which was the arrest and indictment of Steve Bannon, the former Trump campaign chair. He was arrested on the yacht of a exiled Chinese billionaire off the coast of Connecticut. What was the name of the boat, Josh? Do you, yeah, the, do you uh, know? the Lady May. Lady May. That's right. Um, he appeared in court wearing uh, his signature two shirt uh, look and, Vowed to fight the charges. These charges stem from a border wall project, a fundraiser called "We Build the Wall," with a uh, veteran who, I guess, is a double amputee or triple. maybe triple triple yeah. amputee. Yeah, Brian Colefage. Even better. Yeah. Right. Um, and Bannon is alleged to have siphoned off about a million dollars of this twenty-five million dollar fundraising project to build a wall on the southern border. This project has been plagued with issues and kind of. I don't know, foibles from the beginning, but Josh, you were covering this story for us as well. What do um, what do the charges allege, kind of beyond the kind of big picture I mentioned, and, and what else should we know about this story? So what they
2: allege is interesting. It's that, basically, let's rewind back to 2018. Um, the wall is faltering. Or the, the project to build at the federal level is faltering. So Brian Colfage, uh, this conservative personality, slash, like, triple IPT, Air Force veteran, um create this GoFundMe to go build the wall themselves. It gets $19 million in like days, um, and all of a sudden they have this huge pile of money. So according to the indictment, what happened then was that Bannon and a couple other people came in um, with the idea that they were gonna, at least the this, this stated purpose was that they, were going, that they were gonna come in to kind of professionalize the operation. But in order to do that, they needed to move the money away from GoFundMe and into a nonprofit organization that would then Take care of like actually hiring the contractors to build the wall. And as they did all of this, they all very publicly and repeatedly emphasized that they weren't going to take a cent of any of the contributions. They were working pro bono, um, and they were all working only. You know, none of the money would go to them. It would all go towards the wall. Um, And you know. Matt Shuham has covered this a lot, and that nonprofit did actually build like a small amount of wall, and it was like kind of comically plagued with all these like inefficiencies and everything went right. wrong. Everything went wrong, right? Part of it was
1: sort of crumbling into the Mexican side a little bit of yeah, the border, yeah. too, right?
2: Exactly. So they, they didn't know which side of the border they were building the wall on. Um, but uh, the, the, the indictment alleges is that there were a lot of problems in moving the money over from the GoFundMe into the nonprofit. Essentially, they had to convince all the GoFundMe donors. To, to make the donation again. Um, so they had to re-raise the same amount of money. And then, but also in doing that, they you know, found themselves kind of applicable to a whole other range of regulations that they normally wouldn't have been if it were just like a normal kind of scam that people run, kind of like at the NRA, for example. Um, so like, as you said, the allegations are that, you know he banned and siphoned the million out into his own nonprofit. It seems like that nonprofit is called Citizens for the American Republic, it's Citizens of the American Republic, excuse me. Um, he uses that for a lot of his messaging campaigns, be it American nationalism or kind of anti People's Republic of China stuff, um, he, you know, he runs a podcast out of that. Uh, it, it's, it, it's a vehicle for him to pursue like all these political ends he's trying to pursue. Um, but then also Colfage was able to extract allegedly a couple hundred thousand dollars of the donors' money. Um, for his own use, and that you know, included paying for this boat that he took to a voter rally on July 4th in Florida for Trump, um, it said cosmetic surgery, all sorts of things. But the main issue there is that he made a commitment very
1: publicly to the donors that he wasn't gonna take any money, and he did, allegedly. Right, and Kate, I'm, I'm curious if you think this development hurts Trump politically at all. You know, We are only about 70 days from the election, give or take. Uh, I think I have that right. And, you know, this is what the second Trump campaign manager to be hit with federal charges. The I don't know, like, are we up to 10 maybe former associates either on the campaign or in the White House who have who have been hit with federal charges or Trump allies who have been hit with federal charges? Does this even make a dent in the in Trump's political standing? Or I don't know, is it just kind of par for the course at this point?
0: Yeah, my impression is that it. A is kind of getting swallowed up by everything else that's happening. And B, if you're an undecided voter who's waiting to see if Trump has surrounded himself with corrupt people and you're not swayed by this point, I don't think, you know, number seven of his colleagues, you know, going down is going to be the one that sells you. I think it's kind of more something for, you know, liberals to laugh at. And the details of the story are kind of funny. Like the fact that he was, you know, kind of sunburnt and tussled when he was pulled off the boat by, like, USPS investigators. Right, and, right. You know, like, that's funny. And, you know, S- Steve Bannon is kind of a, a character to begin with. Um, yeah, so I think it definitely falls more into that bucket um, than anything else. And also, it just, I don't know, this, this scheme is just, it's just dumb. Like, they didn't, it's not even that much money that we're talking about, you know, kind of grand scheme. I mean, obviously it's more money than, you know, I've ever had, but you're going to go down for taking like $1 million. Really? It just seems so like kind of small potatoes and, you know, just kind of silly.
1: Right. And Bannon being a former Goldman Sachs executive and you know, running a successful conservative media empire in Breitbart, it doesn't seem like he's exactly hurting for cash. But I guess, you know, along with that maybe comes a lavish lifestyle that needs a certain amount of funding. Um, You know, one thing I'm curious to get both of your thoughts on is that Steve Bannon has this incredible way of just always injecting himself into news coverage of the president. He's hasn't been involved in kind of campaigns or politics since, I guess, he left the White House, really, although he went to Italy to try to kind of spread his his Bannon-style populist politics, but yet he's very savvy at always getting news coverage of himself and, I don't know, his causes. Is that just because he's makes himself available to reporters? You know, Kate, we had that famous interview um, with Earl Morris, the documentary filmmaker who made a, a movie about Bannon, was that maybe a year or two ago? Um, I don't know. What do you make of just his kind of ubiquitous presence in the media, too?
0: Well, I think to some degree, I mean, he's he's like kind of interesting, you know, like you can if you listen to him talk, I think he's smarter than some of the others that Trump surrounds himself with, um, which kind of contributes into his ability to say things that are not what every other Trump person says. But I also just think there is, to some degree, like a fascination with people in Trump's orbit because Trump is still such—I mean, even four years in, he's an anomaly, you know, he's nothing we've ever seen before. And I don't know how else you explain that, like, Anthony Scaramucci still gets put on TV. Like, what does he have to contribute except, you know, that he was in Trump's orbit for some amount of time?
1: Right about ten days in the White House,
0: right, exactly. <laughs> like well, I don't think we're expecting you know groundbreaking insights from that tenure.
2: I think Ben also always held himself out, and I don't know if this is really true, but he did p- kind of portray himself as, as being like the like ideological like nerve center of Trump, right? So Trump like had all these kind of like somewhat coherent like thoughts and impulses, but Ben was able to kind of like make them cohere into, like, one ideology or, like, one, like, a maybe more, like, I don't know, systemic system of thought, um, which, and, and, like, I mean, and, and that was, like, kind of his pitch, right, in 2000, I mean, both as, like, campaign chairman in 2016, and also since then, like, I am the one who is like, you know, like, I'm i going I to know what America First actually means. Like, I'm, I know what America would make America great again actually means, and I can explain it to you, uh, like, both, like, on, a, on a, kind of, like, a high level and a low level. And I don't, like, think that's actually kind of true. Like, I think it, like, a lot of ways he's sort of a charlatan, but it is, like, very appealing, I think, if you're trying to, like, find a way to, you know, explain, like, what is going on. Here's a guy with, like, a ready-made ready kind of, like, checklist of, like, ideas and policies that can, uh, you know, fit into this.
1: Right. And Josh, I wondered if we could just end on a kind of tangential or related, I guess, investigation or storyline to the Bannon story, which is, um, you know, his relationship with this exiled Chinese billionaire. Remind me of his name? Yeah, Guo Wengui or uh, Miles Kwok. He has um, many names. Right. And so, like I mentioned at the um, beginning of this segment, Bannon was on um, his yacht when he was arrested by USPS agents, and he has... I guess, a complicated relationship with him. I, they're trying to sort of start a, a new media empire, right, a kind of against the Communist Party in China, part of this sort of anti-China, I guess, element that has emerged on the right. Tell us about this separate investigation, what you know? What Bannon's exposure might be in that case, or, or kind of what the deal is on that note.
2: Right, so let me rewind a little bit. So Guo and a Chinese businessman, um, You know, he was big in real estate in Beijing. He built a bunch of, like, big apartment complexes there. But in late 2014, um, just as Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, is doing this big, very public anti-corruption campaign, um, which also has its own allegations that people, they weren't really going after corruption, they're going after people who were politically opposed um, to them, using corruption as a pretext, Uh, Guo uh, starts feeling the heat, and he flees China for the U.S., um, he lays low until January, February 2017, at which point he starts to launch a very public uh, campaign accusing the Chinese political elite and so the elite of the Communist Party of corruption themselves. He does this like on Twitter and I think on a couple of other Chinese like social media apps. And what's interesting about it is that even though the allegations are unsubstantiated, uh, he does gain a pretty big following um, Both among the Chinese expatriate community In the United States And also among like, people in China Who are able to get past the firewalls there And read what he's saying So he becomes like a, he, he does in a lot of ways Become at least, if not a threat At least like an irritant to the Communist Party They spend a lot of 2017 trying various ways, trying to basically extradite him back to China. Various ways. We found out part of that through an indictment last week, and not indictment, but a charging document last week in Hawaii, uh, which revealed that a uh, basically a Chinese unnamed Chinese government minister hired a couple Republican lobbyists to try and get the Trump administration to extradite uh, this billionaire. From the U.S. to China, that happened. That effort took place in summer 2017. At the same time, there's all this reporting, partly based off of like secret recordings that Guo himself made, um, showing that China itself sent like people to his apartment in Manhattan. He rents this huge like apartment next to Central Park, trying um, to try and persuade him individually to come back, uh, telling him like, look, you know, well, you come back, we'll have the heat. Just like stop bothering us. Um, but he, he refused and he stayed here. And that fall, he ends up uh, after all those efforts. He ends up befriending Steve Bannon. Um, you know, Axios I think or somebody else got a copy of the contract, uh, which not a company owned by Guo, but a company that affiliates that's affiliated with Guo, because It's all very murky. Um, hired Steve Bannon for, it's like a a million dollar contract Uh, and under the terms of that contract Bannon is supposed to do media outreach and also kind of help this company uh, gain access to like influential media personalities in the United States Um, and so since then the two have been working together on this effort to like uh, discredit if not like overthrow the Communist Party of China. Um, that culminated, most recently in this thing called the New Federal Republic of China, which is like a Chinese government in exile. Bannon and Guo announced it on a yacht next to, on the yacht next to the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor in June. New um, Yorkers on that day, it was the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. Uh, retreated to these like flyovers of like it was like small planes like they have at the beach that trail like big banners but it said like congratulations to the new federal republic of china and nobody knew what it meant there's still all these like twitter users who are, like tweeting like you know what the fuck is going on um but so that happened but what's also happened at the same time uh and this goes to your question about the investigation is that This isn't just one report, this is like police plotters all around the country. Basically Bannon and Guo have been trying to raise money for a media effort, um, reportedly. And what's happened there is that there have been some reports suggesting that they tried to do this on the private market, basically through investors. And what happened was, is they supposedly got investors for a couple of the media companies. One of them is called GTV, the other is called Voice of Guo. And that um, when the people, these investors gave the money, most of the investors were Chinese, uh, they didn't get anything in return. So they didn't get any, they allegedly didn't get any documents confirming that they had like bought a stake of these companies, that they had gotten any stock uh, in return for the money they gave. Um, and so that's reportedly led to an FBI investigation. And we know that both through Wall Street Journal reporting, but also because um, a couple of the investors who allegedly were defrauded got like basically filed like local police reports. They like called like, you know, the. I don't know, like the Kenosha County Police Department. And then they that showed up on like the police blotters from all these like random like local localities around the US saying like this Chinese billionaire is like allegedly like cheating these investors. And I should know that Guo and Bannon both deny this extensively. They deny that there's an investigation and they say that, you know, everything they're doing is completely above board, completely okay. Um, but that's essentially what the investigation is looking at. Uh, and it's you know, when the Coast Guard cutter with Male inspectors approached ban like you quoted the yacht last week. I doubt it was clear which you know exact which investigation exactly that was a part of.
1: Right, and is this yeah. also is this investigation also reportedly out of the Southern District of New York?
2: It's both Manhattan and Brooklyn, so it's the Southern and Eastern Districts. Right,
1: so. and the um the SDNY is the prosecutor's office that, um, I guess was behind the charges uh, for the We Build the Wall project as well. And wasn't there there was a a kind of ice cold quote from Guo of reportedly when Bannon was arrested. Right? Do you ha- do you recall that? What he was saying?
2: Yeah, so Bannon was getting arrested, and Guo he actually Guo said this later in the day, like on like a live stream. He was like, "It makes me happy to see uh, you being arrested because it will." Uh, strength and resolve to fight the communists, (laughs) (laughs) which is like very, like, it's a great, it's a great mix of ice cold and also like 1950s, like John Bercher, like vibe of like, (laughs) you know, you need to like suffer to understand how bad the communists are, but yeah.
1: Right, right, right. All right. Well, thanks for that explanation, Josh. That's super helpful. Um, All right. in the, in the remaining few minutes we have, I thought we could turn our attention to the GOP convention a little bit and get your perspective on it. Kate, you're on late with us tonight, but you've mercifully, I guess, <laughs> been off the first couple nights of it. But, um, you know, from what you've seen and, and read and heard, what what have you made of it so far?
0: I mean, it's funny because I've seen, you know, clips like I saw the Kimberly Goldfoil screaming into the void one. Um, and I also watched you know, Nikki Haley's speech, which was a, a bit of a different flavor. But, you know, the, the talk of the town today seems to kind of revolve around a, you know, a, political, a Politico reporter who framed um, the kind of flagrant Hatch Act violations going on by um, Trump and Melania's use of the White House as their background, um, not to mention Pompeo. Giving his pre recorded speech from Jerusalem where he was on official travel. You know, and the reporter kind of framed it as, America, no one cares about this outside the Beltway, like blah, blah, blah. Which, you know, just seems kind of insane because, yeah, probably nobody would have cared about Hillary's emails outside the Beltway either if it wasn't a decision to make it a focus, you know, or to kind of at least cover Trump. The Trump campaign's focus on it. So I don't know that just that piece of it, the whole, you know, no one cares about white collar crime is just not true. And is kind of an abdication of the reality that journalists and outlets do shape the agenda to some degree, you know, you do have a hand in picking what people care about. Um, so that's definitely been a through line that I've kind of witnessed from afar.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, ahead of the convention, we were promised an optimistic and uplifting event. And, you know, the Trump campaign was trying to contrast this with the DNC last week, which they painted as all doom and gloom. America sucks. And uh, it's so awful. And Biden will kind of help fix it. And I don't know, we saw that play out a lot. I think Kimberly Guilfoyle's speech, like you mentioned, was a good example of that. Democrats want to enslave you with their liberal policies um but the best is yet to come i guess that was her optimistic sign off <laughs> as she spread her arms and yelled into the <laughs> into the uh into the into the night but josh what um what have you picked up on so far i mean you are not covering campaign politics uh quite as much in your in your role at tpm but as just a kind of viewer what has struck you so far
2: well i would add to what kate said and just i, I would just get in that like the political thing take also completely forgets that like You know, having the pardon occur during the campaign convention, and also having the like naturalization ceremony occur during the campaign convention—like, I mean, not only is that like essentially an improper attempt to like make the election like less fair and less free because you're saying like, look, the federal government is taking a Um, side—but like, those two specific choices of policy, I mean, those are like things that like I guess could occur publicly, and they are to an extent things that do occur publicly. But it's also like two areas of policy in which Trump has, like, attracted, like, a ton of controversy, both for trying to slow down not only legal, but, like, legal immigration, like, for closing on, like, various avenues towards which people can, like, come to the U.S. legally and become citizens, but also, like, his use of the pardon power most recently to, like, pardon Roger Stone, right? I guess not most, most recently it was Susan B. Anthony,
1: right. but, uh,
2: <laughs> but, but Roger Stone more controversially. Um, so, it, it, but when I saw that, like, I, I kind of understood it, like, almost as, uh an implicit like if we get reelected this is what we're going to keep doing like the like like you know if if you want this we'll do this and it like just made like it, it to me. It, it just took like the normal functioning of like federal policy or like federal criminal justice and like made it way more transactional and just way more Trumpy than it otherwise yeah. would have been. And like framed it in a way that was like just even more explicit. And I think that honestly probably appeals to people. I mean, like I think like a lot of people just tend to think about the. I mean, and this isn't everybody in the country, but like I think a lot of people do look at the government and say, "Well, like he's our guy. I want him to do things. I I want him. To think, I want him to do things that I think are kind of like at least culturally offend or own the other." Side, and I mean that, that's it. So it's like, uh, it, I, I, I didn't think anything was inconsistent. With what we've seen for the previous right. three years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You touched on what was going to be my next question, and maybe Kate, you can speak to this a little bit. Which is just, do you think those, I guess, publicity stunts or using the White House as a prop, like, is appealing to voters? I mean, the country is so divided that there really aren't there aren't a ton of swing voters or independents who you know, might be watching these conventions and are not sure who their guy is and are, you know, maybe going to come away with this having decided. But do you think, is it appealing to Trump's base? Is it appealing to people who are more casually, I don't know, Republican identifying or not? I
0: mean, the weirdest thing to me about his use of the trappings of the White House to make himself look powerful and important is that it kind of runs contrary to the message to the extent that there has been one of the convention, which is playing this weird game where they're trying to pretend like he's not in charge right now and framing things as if if Biden is president, you'll have riots and economic devastation and more people will die. And it's like that is what's happening now. You know, I think that's encapsulated in an ad they ran um, featuring, you know, footage from Seattle or Pro, or uh, Portland or something like that saying, you know, this is Joe Biden's America, which is just, you know, you're asking voters to buy into this fabrication that Trump is running as an incumbent again. You know, it, this is Trump's America right now. So, you know, I just I don't know if. Voters are going to see him speaking from the White House and be like, okay, you know, presidential in charge. Or if they're going to remember that thousands of people are dying every day on his watch, that we're in a huge recession on his watch, you know, that there's racial unrest and, you know, not to mention, you know, the more normal. devastation of climate change with you know california going up in flames so i don't i just i don't i can't remove myself from the situation enough to know if people are going to drink the kool-aid on that kind of ridiculous attempt to build this fantasy world that around where he's running
2: what's confusing about it to me as well is that like if you look at like yeah, like, like, if you strip everything of, like, even, like, the Trumpian rhetoric and just, like, look at, like, their policy records, like, the big, like, criticism of Biden on the left, one of the big criticisms is that he was responsible in part for the 1994 crime bill, right, which, like, added, I think I think one of the criticisms said it added, like, 100,000 cops and, like, arguably, I mean, it fed mass incarceration. That's a huge point of criticism, but did, like, in some ways succeed in, like, you know... Dropping the crime rate. So it's kind of odd for Trump to like take this like line of critique also not only because like he's president but also because like Biden it, I mean if he wants to could actually could like kind of attack Trump from the right on that like he could say like look like I, when I was in the Senate I was the author of a bill that like dramatically depressed crime rates around the country uh, so like You Know this, I it's 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 just it's just there's this like weird cognitive dissonance in trying to make Joe Biden this like ultra left, like Marxist revolutionary who wants to like open the prisons and let them let criminals like run free when in fact, like, I mean, he's probably like at least in like in previous iterations of his career as a senator or politician, he like has like been not on the left of this issue at all, right? Right,
0: no, that's a good point. Oh, and yeah, I just say, ahead. and also kind of encapsulates another dynamic that we've seen, which is that Trump and the Republicans are kind of running against the opponent they want to be running against, not the opponent that they have. Um, and we've also, I think, seen that from all their mixed messaging on Biden, you know, going swinging kind of from he's a, you know, senile shell for the radical policies of Kamala Harris, which is like also kind of hard to swallow because she hasn't even been particularly progressive. But then on the other side of it, you have and he's also, you know, leading the protests, essentially. So, I mean, they, he's radical, blah, blah, blah. They just, like, can't really figure out how to paint him.
1: Yeah. Are you surprised at all? I mean, I'm struck watching the convention a little bit, too, that Make America Great Again is still the slogan after four years, right? And there's kind of no acknowledgement that he's been in the office for you know, coming up on four years that he has been the guy in charge. And like you say, Kate, you know, he's trying to run as an outsider, um, drain the swamp, yet he is in power and he has a Republican Senate, you know, kind of doing his beck and call as well. Does that surprise you that that's still, you know, that they haven't come up with a new phrase or is it just so part of the popular imagination now that you can't really extract MAGA from Trump?
0: Well, I just, uh, I think, we've kind of talked about this before on the pod, but I just don't think he has any other way. Like, his whole political ethos is being a grievance candidate who's kind of coming in, and I think people who like him are, you know, yeah, maybe he's an asshole, but he's going to shake things up, you know? And I don't know how you transfer that into an incumbency campaign because he's not got much of a record to run on, so... I think he has to enter this other dimension where someone else is president right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's trying to run as an outsider while he's in office, right? Like, yeah. It's very weird. But on the Make America Great Again thing, I'm not sure if I'm right on this, but if I recall correctly, last year, there was, the slogan was Keep America Great.
1: Mm. And then
2: COVID and the connected recession happened and so, like, America is, like, obviously— you stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, like, on their terms, like, not great. So, it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm right on that, that they changed the slogan back to MAGA after, like, everything happens. But, like, it would be very funny if they did.
0: Yeah, yeah and
1: I know there, there was a brief— another slogan floated, right? Transition to greatness. That, that was, was the funniest one. That was a good one, yeah, yeah. Let that us was, transition
0: um, after four years, like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have today. Uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew. You can get twenty percent off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. Josh and Kate, appreciate your time. Good to see you and talk to you next week. Likewise, Thanks, thank you. Guys. Bye. Bye.